What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the podcast that takes football fans behind the scenes. Here is what I have lined up for you today. When you find a good one and you bring him to the Premier League, he's in the biggest showcase of the world and someone else is going to want it. You know, once Maurizio started hitting the headlines, it was I knew I better have my eye on the ground for the next one. Usually the episodes are every fortnight, but this week I had the pleasure of sitting down with the legendary Les Reed. Les spent over a decade at Southampton, helping to guide them from League One to a sustainable Premier League club. He also recently spent time as a technical director at the FA. In part one of this two-part episode, we speak about creating a vision and philosophy with the ownership, Pochettino's interview, the process of scouting players like Sadio Mane, who was in the famous black box and the pressure of replacing the likes of Ronald Koeman, Luke Shaw, Virgil van Dijk and so much more. This is the What The Footy podcast with Les Reed. I hope you love it, not like it, I hope you love it. So you know what to do, download, subscribe, rate and review and tell a friend, tell a friend, let's go. I knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now it's important. Powerful people and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fan. Great to have you on the podcast today. Les, how are you doing? You okay? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Paul. Uh, all good. No, brilliant. But yeah, we like to start off the show with this question, which is what is football to you, a business or a sport and why? I think I think emotionally to me it's a sport. You know, it was the the first real sport, you know, I played kicking the ball around and it was fun and enjoyable. And um I grew up just loving playing football. Um and so for me, you know, definitely definitely a sport. But obviously I've I've had a long career in the game and quite clearly as a sport, it does provide a platform for a very lucrative and global business so I accept professional football uh, or football as a business but to me it's it's a sport and if if it wasn't a business and nobody ever got paid for it I'm pretty sure there'd still be millions of people playing it because it's good it's a good game no definitely but yeah Les I thought I'd obviously invite you on the podcast and bring you on I'd probably say you're our biggest guest so far and we've had people like Dave Bassett Chris Kirkland and Steve Morrow all come on, so uh, so no pressure. But I thought it would just be great to sort of get your perspective being a vice chairman and sort of sporting director at Southampton for so many years and successfully, just to sort of pick your brains a bit. I know quite a lot of fans have a lot of questions about what people like yourself do behind the scenes. But just first of all, talk to me about the, the philosophy and the vision behind what you were trying to do at Southampton, working with uh, with Marcus Lieber and, and 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 Katarina as well. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, Southampton back in two thousand and nine, probably between two thousand and eight and nine, it was it was declining and had gone into administration and was very very close to going out of existence in a matter of days, really. Um, when Marcus Lieber 
um, bought the club and took them out of administration. Uh, so, so back then in 2009, I was um, contracted by, by them to um, basically go in and, and do a, a football audit of the club to have a look at um, what was there. You know, because of administration, everything had been pared down to, to, to nearly nothing. Um, so what was there, what needed doing? And it's the clear, the clear question for me was, well, what do you want to do with it? So what, what are your aspirations? Um, why have you bought it? And what do you want to achieve with it? And Marcus was very clear about that, that, um, you know, Southampton was 10 points deducted towards the bottom of League One. Uh, due to administration, and he wanted a five-year plan to get into the Premier League. So he wanted to be in the Premier League in five years. Um, So that was the start. Um, And then he wanted to be in the Premier League, but he wanted to be in the Premier League, uh, owning a very sustainable club that washed its face um, in in a business sense. Um, Also, that played attractive attacking football. And he wanted... Uh, he, he had an aspiration of 50% of the um, Premier League uh, squad uh, being made up of homegrown players and you know academy players, young players that we'd produced ourselves. Um, so that was the brief, really. I, you know, when I was asked that, um, then I had to put a plan together to say, well, this is what you need to do to, to do it and achieve it over these five, this five-year period. Um, it wasn't uh, easy, but one advantage was the fact that because it had come out of administration, um, it, it was almost a clean sheet of paper, that that it, it was probably as broken as it, it could get. And therefore, uh, we were building upwards. We were building from foundations upwards. Um, so f- the first thing really was, based on that brief, to develop a culture and a philosophy around what it would take to get to where we we needed to be and also um the, the the key word being sustainability meant that um this wasn't one where i could say to the owner and i would never do it anyway that you know you're a very wealthy man just throw loads of money at it and we'll buy a team that's capable of getting promotion um there was a lot of shrewd investment um at the beginning with players who were playing in in um League One and the Championship, who had the potential to go on and do what we we needed to achieve, um, but there was going to be no big spend up and bringing in lots of stars and trying to buy the league. So we still had to have in place the right culture and the right training and and, and uh, development philosophy to get to this the sustainable point. So one of the things we have to look at was what would uh, what have we got in the academy that in five years' time would be old enough to be playing in the in the Premier League first team, not just in our first team? Um, and when you when you took five, when you looked at the the fifteen year olds who would be twenty year olds in that time, that's when you found James Ward Prowse, Harrison Reed, Callum Chambers, um, Alex Oxlade Chamberlain was a year above that, um, but also you know the likes of Luke Shaw. Um, and so on. So there were five or six really good young players who we felt would be Premier League potential if we worked with them properly. So the important thing then was to invest in the academy to make sure that youth development became a key 
uh, part of our sustainable future. So we didn't invest lots and lots of money right at the top. We invested it across the board um, and, and built a structure and a strategy that meant we, we felt we would be good enough to get in the Premier League over five years. And when we got there, we would be sustainable. The fact was, um, everybody bought into it really well. I was able to recruit some really, really good people um, on, in different aspects of, of the club. Um, I brought in a guy called Dave Burke, who, who, who left us after three years and went to Brighton as sporting director there. Um, and Dave started the, the very well, uh, you know, very good reputation in terms of re- recruitment, both youth recruitment and senior recruitment, um, and put together a recruitment department, brand new department of scouts, analysts, data analysts, and so on. Uh, he was succeeded by Paul Mitchell, who's now at Monaco. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mitchell took that on and grew it again, and he was succeeded by Ross Wilson, who's now sporting director at, at, at Rangers. Rangers, yeah. So I, I was able to bring in people who had real potential, just like the players, um, and develop yeah. with the club. And obviously, that they've moved on to great things, like some like some of the players have. Well, touching on some of what you just mentioned there, Les, in terms of what you effectively did. I really wanted to ask just on that point there in terms of that strategy, because I think one thing I kind of noticed about some of the things that you've done and I think the famous black box as well is not only how you sort of scouted and recruited the actual players, but the managers and the sort of staff and the team that you had around that. Was that something that you just kind of invented? How did you go about that? And yeah, just sort of talk talk a bit more about that because you speak to anyone within football now, they all tell you that, the sporting director, the team, the scouting department, all these different limbs are so essential to, to building a, a modern football club. Yeah, so, so you know, I, I in the first, the first six months, I, I was a consultant. So, uh, you know, I, I planned it. I got the strategy in place. I told the, the ownership what was needed in order to grow and develop. Um, and... Uh, clearly, they felt that the, the the best person to do that was me. So um, then we really got into into the detail, um, and yeah, the black box was was part of that. But I think it goes back to the culture again. We wanted to be a club that developed not just players but developed people. We were a developing club. We were taking potential and turning it into excellence, and that became a slogan: potential into excellence. And it applied to everybody. So the black box was an interesting one because back in League One, we were we were we were trying to be prudent. We didn't want to overspend. And uh, I I I managed to recruit um, half a dozen um, young graduates, guys and ladies who've come straight out of college into performance analysis and, and data analysis. Um, they'd had work placements. We did an internship scheme, and all of them ended up being long-term employees of the club. Some of them have actually gone on again. We had a we had a girl called Natasha Patel, who was an absolute dream of a performance analyst. She really knew her stuff. She now works for Red Bull New York, um, and um, two or three of the, the those original interns are still there, but they're now senior staff running that department. But the idea was get people around the table, diverse thinking, diverse ideas, be creative. 
So it wasn't me. It wasn't me saying this is what we need to do. This was me saying, right, we need to solve some of these issues, some of these problems. We need to be able to know whether our academy players are going to be good enough. We need to know when we're recruiting young players, are they showing the right potential? We need to know when we go in the market and buy a player, does he have the potential to improve and develop and increase in value? And I got a lot of people around me. Um, a lot of them were just young people, but with great ideas. And, and, and it, we, we started a problem-solving process. We called it the creative box, which was basically, here's a problem. Let's get people in a room with diverse backgrounds, diverse knowledge, diverse qualifications, and talk through the problem and then come up with the answer. And in that way, step by step, we developed the strategy that we, that we um, put into place. And that also developed the people. They, they grew up quickly. They learned. They gained experience quickly. Uh, they became um, creative. And what we had was a psychologically safe environment where anyone could come with an idea and they weren't going to get shouted down. They weren't going to get poo-pooed. They were going to be able to explore it. And if it worked, it worked. We'd implement it. If it didn't work, they, they would be the first to say, yeah, I'm, I don't think this is going to work. Let's, let's move on to yeah. something else. In on that. So whose idea was it to, to go and pluck a relatively inexperienced and, and sort of young Mauricio Pochettino from Espanyol to come over to, to, to Southampton at that time? Well, as you said, we, we also um, we, we did our background on, on coaches as much as we did on players. So the same kind of profiling, obviously yeah. different KPIs. But um, when... Uh, Alan, Alan Pardew was the manager when I arrived and at that point I was a consultant um, and so when Alan was fired he was fired by by the chairman um, who then asked me about how we go about finding a replacement so I got stuck in the, in the middle of that and I thought right well, that's not going to happen again you know a, a manager can leave any time in football he can be fired he can get a better offer and move on etc etc you see that every season and you get the scenario where, um, in some cases, you get a caretaker coach um, who who doesn't really make a massive difference and more points are lost. You know, it's a risky point when you decide to part company or when a manager just walks out. So my view was we need to know who are the young uh, coaches out there, who are the coaches out there who have got the right fit and therefore, we had to apply a lot of diligence, a lot of research to pull together a database of, of young coaches who we thought would be the right fit. You don't know until you actually go about recruiting them, but um, yeah. you can do a lot of work and, and, and pull your database together. So part of the black box was the manager's portfolio. Um, now, that changes all the time because you might have someone who's at the top of your list and then they get a job and they sign a three or four year contract and they're going to be out of, you know, out of the way for a few years. So you have to keep looking, you keep adjusting it. Um, at the time um, of, of Nigel Adkins' departure, so Nigel was recruited in that way. Um, at the time of Nigel's departure, um, uh, we'd been looking at, at Espanol uh, players as a club. Um, we were looking at Espanol quite, quite closely and we liked the style so we we felt and we did this a lot we didn't necessarily in in all cases um have players targeted but what we would do was look at clubs who played kind of football we would like to develop 
and therefore their players might be a better fit than someone who plays in a different way. So, so we, we monitored most of the European leagues and we looked at clubs who played with certain style and had players that played in the way, in positions that we wanted. So Espanyol was one of those clubs. Um, and um, we were, we were uh, I, this was one of my secret questions, so I'm going to have to change it. But um, we, uh, we were looking at Coutinho. So we, we looked at a young Coutinho. Um, we, we had him on our radar for a while. And that's... No, when he was at Espanol. When he was at Inter Milan. Espanol. And his coach was Maurizio yeah. Pochettino. Um, so by watching uh, Philippe, we, we, we saw a lot of the way Espanol played and, and saw a lot of, of Poch. Um, I, I was going to sign Coutinho. It was, it, it was almost a done deal. We had to get a work visa. So I'd done all the background yeah. to get his work permit. And I was on my way to the hearing when I got a call from the chairman to say, um, we, we, we've had a change of track. We, we're not going to buy him. So that was a bit of a mystery to me, but we came back. Um, but the work hadn't been wasted because um, I'd, I'd taken quite a shine to Maurizio's style and the way he played. I did a lot of research. I used my contacts in Spain. And all the reports I was getting back were good. So Maurizio was high on our potential list. And then when Nigel parted company, um, I was able to, to, to go straight to that, um, that portfolio and, and come up with Maurizio as our number one candidate. Nobody had ever heard of him. Uh, the, the owners, the chair, chairman had never heard of him. Um, but I managed to persuade people that I felt this, this guy had something special. In that research, you always look at the assistant coaches, the players they've worked with, the effect they've had on certain players. So we, we knew about that with Coutinho and one or two others that were at Espanyol at the time. Um, and we did a bit of background on the rest of the, the coaching team. And they were a good team, a good coaching team. So the process I put in place then was, how do you interview these guys? And it was a three-stage process. Um, and the first stage really is me doing all the talking, just basically saying, this is our club, this is our culture, this is our philosophy. If you want this job, this is what's expected of you. This is who you report to. So there are no surprises when the coach starts. Um, they, they, none of them can say, well, you didn't tell me that or you didn't say this. Um, so they're clear what they're getting into. Then the second stage interview is, if you still want the job, you tell us why you're the best fit for this job, knowing what you know about our club, knowing what you know about our philosophy. Um, and, and Maurizio brought the team, Miguel, Tony and, and Jesus, and just smashed it. Um, they, they, they brought two laptops, they had projection, you know, they had everything ready, we had a TV ready for them, and they went into the whole, the whole ta technical, tactical strategy business. Because I always challenge people at that interview. Managers don't often get challenged by people in the interview about why do you think zonal marking is better than, you know, they don't often get those challenging questions. Um, and, and Maurizio smashed it and, and was, was clearly met all my expectations. The clear thing about it, and this is another reason for having this continuous database and portfolio of coaches, is to Pellegrino 
Hasenhuller had just signed a long-term contract at Red Bull. Yeah. But he was on our list because of the work he'd done at his previous club, taking young players and developing a team, which is how he got the job at Red Bull. So mm. you, you, that's why you have to keep refreshing it, because just when you think you might have two or three candidates, they can all get a job and then you've got no candidates. And that can happen as well. Um, or your, your candidates are very, very, you know, further down the list, so to speak. But... Um, I think more clubs are doing it now. Yeah, I was going to say, just on that, Les, I think in sort of in terms of you, when I really look back and reflect on those years of, I think there was a time I had to do a report and I was trying to analyse a business or a club and I picked Southampton because for me it was just mind-boggling how you were losing players every season, you were losing the manager every so often, but you were finishing higher and higher in consecutive seasons. But just sort of explain to me the reality and the pressure that was literally on your shoulders running this strategy because you see some clubs try and hire and fire and appoint and, and change things around. It doesn't always work and it's, it's not really a long-term sustainable strategy. But how did you deal with that pressure? of Because even one of your former players... Um, uh, he's, he's there right now, Ryan Bertrand publicly said that he wants to be a sporting director because he, he would love the pressure. But just explain to people the pressure that people like yourself go through. Yeah, I had many, I had many hours with Ryan in my room. He's a very, very intelligent guy, a very bright guy, yeah. and, 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 and really as an eye for business, um, spent a lot of time with Ryan. Um, but yeah, I, I think the thing is, um, what helped was the fact that we started with nothing. So we were 10 points deducted in League 2, uh, in League 1, yeah. and the expectations weren't very high. Um, previous potential buyouts had come and gone, and everyone, the morale was very low um, because they'd, they'd had four storms before and it never worked. Um, so therefore, expectations were pretty low. And therefore... Yeah. The owner could have patience and the fans had patience because, you know, they'd nearly lost their club. Now, that, that all of a sudden changes when you accelerate the success in the way that we did. Mm. So, so um, you know, we got, we, we, we wanted, the, Alan won the Johnson's Pate Trophy, which was a great sign because that was under the new ownership. And it was in the season that they bought the club. And it was in the season when we had administration. And got within two points of the playoffs. So, so that was a good sign. The club was starting on this upward trajectory and we had a trophy to show for it. And that made a big difference um, in people's beliefs. Then the following uh, two seasons, we got, we got promoted. So we, we got back-to-back promotions and ended up in the Premier League in three years. So that really accelerates the belief. And also it means... When I'm talking to players and their agents, they want to come. They want to come to Southampton. Yeah. This is a club going somewhere. So that's, that's, the, that's the easy bit. But what you do is the more successful you are, the greater the weight of the expectations become. Yeah. And people quickly forget where you came from. Mm. So, you know, we finished 8th, 7th, 6th and 8th in a period where we had a massive turnover of players and we had three managers. And we didn't plan to have three managers. You know, it wasn't yeah. impatience. It's just that two of them got, got headhunted by other clubs because of our success. Now, the expectation is higher, but also the eyes of the world are on you. And so the surprise element's gone. 
you know, teams prepare better yeah. against you because you've got good players. Um, and those players are, were proven to be capable of moving to the next level and the level above that. So we 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 didn't deliberately have a strategy for selling players and making money. Yeah, just that, because yeah. We found really good players with really good potential and we developed them really well to a high standard. And so um, any any player, if you take Sadio Mane, for instance, as one of the loveliest kids I've ever worked with, you know, desperately wanted to come to Southampton, desperately wanted to work hard, had a dream that one day he'd win the Ballon d'Or um, yeah. and, and would do anything to achieve that. And so it was a dream to train, to coach, to work with for the managers and the coaches, the fitness coaches, looked after himself, absolute model professional. But there's going to be a day when someone says, you know what, you should be playing for Liverpool. And he's not going to say no, because it's part of his dreams, part of his journey. So you have to realise that, that when you get them to that level, they are, the, 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 they are going to be attracted to the world's best clubs. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. If, if that's the, mo- if that's the yeah. momentum and you make enough money to then reinvest it back into what you're doing, then you can achieve sustainability. It's, it's when you set up as a business. to to So other clubs have done it in a different way. They've applied similar principles, but they do it on the basis they're looking for people to sell to make money. We never did that. We just knew the inevitable would come when a big club would be knocking on the door. So whilst they're all going to bigger clubs, which they in my time they all went to bigger clubs, um, we, we, we never devalued any players. We never got, got players going out for less money than we bought them for. They were always going out for more money. Um, yeah. I love so my club Arsenal. <laughs> yeah. um, but then the pressure is on because the expectation when you've come six in the league is not to go and find a, a, another player that nobody's heard of. You're expected oh, yeah. to go and find someone who's just as good as money. And that's the pressure that's on them because... Um, you know, we we did a massive turnaround when Ronald Koeman took over, um, but the black box principle worked perfectly. And what, what I mean by that is we knew that we wouldn't hang on to Adam Lallana, Ricky Lambert, Diane Lovren, um, and players like that forever. We knew that they were going to be attracted, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Luke Shaw. So we had to have players ready that we thought we could bring in. Ryan Bertrand's a good example more experience yeah. and actually got a Champions League medal with Chelsea to we replace the 17-year-old kid, Luke Shaw. Luke yeah. Shaw went to Manchester United for 30 million. We got Ryan Bertrand on loan um, from Chelsea for nothing with a potential buy, buy at about 6 million, I think, um, and ended up with, uh, you know, one of the longest service players at the club, one of the big, biggest appearances at the club and an England player. Um, because we'd done our homework, knowing that probably uh, as good as Ryan was, he wasn't a permanent fixture in the Chelsea team. And he was going to want first-team football, and we could offer it to him. Yeah. And the rest the rest is history. Who do we have lined up to replace Adam Lama? Dusan Tadic. Who do we have lined up to replace Ricky Lambert? Graziano Pella. Who do we have lined up to replace Dayan Lovren? Toby Alderweireld. Who do we have getting, him, getting him on loan was ridiculous, yeah. Yeah. 
and and you know we had to we had to you know he was on loan. We knew he was going to be attractive um, to bigger clubs, possibly Barcelona, possibly clubs like that. We'd been tracking Toby since he was in the Ajax Youth Academy, as we did with Pierre Hoiberg. Um, so therefore, we had to have this 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 other kid on the on the database called Virgil Van Dyke in the wings, yeah. you know. And 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 do the deal with with Chelsea to do that uh, with Celtic to do that, but each time you replace one like that, the, the fans, the media, they're expecting another Virgil Van Dyke, you know. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not watch. expecting, and so um, then you get into the realms of if you're going to do it that way, you've got to have massive financial resources to go and do it. And you kind of, you don't hit a ceiling, but what you do is you hit a ceiling of expectation, which is we're not a big enough club to do that. We, we get 32,000 in the stadium in a full house. You know, we're not, we're not like, it's not like Anfield. We, we, we get our TV money like every other club gets our TV money, but our revenues on top of that don't compare to the clubs that can pay a 40, 50, 60 million pound for players. You know, and, and I was looking at a list yesterday of, of of the world's big big signings. You know, and 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 now you're talking hundred hundred million, two hundred million. Look at what Coutinho went for in the end. You know, and you know you've got to be realistic um, and manage the expectations in a way that a club like Southampton can. And and you know, we, I, I think there was a bit of a false hope that when. Mr. Gal bought the club that we had this mega wealthy billionaire yeah. who's going to throw lots of money in. I, I wouldn't have liked it to have been like that. I wouldn't have liked to have had unlimited resources to go and spend because um, the the you're 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 still going to yeah. those players are still going to move on because they want the, the players you can afford to buy with that kind of money want to play for Man United or Chelsea or Paris Saint-Germain or Barcelona or Real Madrid. So, you know, you, you, you've, it makes your job harder. And that's when the pressure comes in. The pressure to do it again and again, but when you've been top of the league. To do it when you're in the middle or when you're in the championship, everyone's patting you on the back and it's great. When you do it, when you're at the top of the league and you're in sixth, seventh, eighth, you know, who wouldn't want to finish sixth, well, seventh, sixth, seventh, eighth, with two, three Wembley appearances in two years, two semi-finals and a final, plus two European campaigns where you beat Inter Milan in the Europa League. Yeah. Um, you know, who wouldn't want that? And yet the expectations were more. It was like, we've got to have that every year. And yeah, but you know, I think I think I think it's a thing whereby you're almost, I think, looking back, you're probably an enemy of your own success. And I think just yeah. just even just even going and touching some of the things you just mentioned there, Les. Like I think as well, what, what's really fascinating about what Southampton have done as a club is almost betting on leagues that people always kind of ignored. Like like I look at football today, and people sort of have a joke and a, and a sort of a take the mick out of the Scottish Premier League, but you look at some of the players that you guys brought over from there, like Virgil van Dijk, Victor Wanyama, betting on on the Austrian league where you brought Sadio Mane from. And it's a thing now whereby you almost feel as though a few sort of non-traditional big six clubs have almost kind of copied your strategy and 
And I look at a team like Leicester, for instance, and how sort of shrewd they've become in the market, picking up players like Yuri Tielemans, Wesley Fofana, Timothy Castagna. They've almost sort of mirrored some of the stuff that you guys have done. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, we would have had, on our, on our database, we, we, we would have had probably a similar list of players that Leicester would have had. Um, yeah. You know, and some of those went to Leicester. Um, and that's the bit when you get to that level of success, they're the, they're the players you're looking at, but they've got a choice now. Yeah. You know, they, they, you know when, when people look at Southampton, like, like Sadio coming in from Red Bull, would go, that's a stepping stone for me. That's, that's a club that I can really make my name out and move on. Um, those kind of players now have got a choice. That could be Leicester. You know, at the moment, it could be West Ham. It could West be, Ham, yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, once Everton get their stadium built and all of the infrastructure going there, so the competition to find your Sadios and that are, are, are greater. When we were looking at Victor, well, we got Victor Banyama, we got Sadio, uh, we got Virgil, we got um, Stuart, um, uh, who's in the team at the moment. And, Armstrong. And, um, Stuart Armstrong and um, Fraser... Um, Yeah, Fraser, yeah, Fraser yeah, the yeah. keeper. Um, oh, yeah, Fraser Forster, yeah. Fraser Forster. What, what, what the point I was trying to make was people yeah. weren't looking at them or people were looking at them and going, it's Scotland, I'm not sure yeah. whether they'll be good enough for the Premier League. Our data was an, enough for us to be able to make that judgment and say, yeah, well, we can cash in. Now, as you said, they're all doing it. Now they're, now they're all at it. The difference is where we would look at those leagues around Europe and pluck out your Tadiches and so on, um, and Dayan Lovren, you know. Um, what, what the big clubs are doing now is they're not just looking at the leagues, they're buying the clubs in the leagues. <laughs> they're mm, actually forming yeah. groups. And that's the next stage, really, is the big six clubs will form big groups and therefore have um, a, a much stronger ability to transition players through until they're ready. Whereas we were, the, we were the transition stage. You know, we, we transitioned Sadio Mane into a Premier League player who could play at Liverpool. Now Liverpool will have their own club where they'll yeah. do that, you know. So, but that's the, that's the way the game changes. And I'm quite pleased that having had that original discussion with Marcus Liebherr and Nicola Cortese, that uh, we achieved our objectives. We achieved that sustainability as a Premier League football club. And also... Uh, led the way in a lot of new thinking and new research, which is now changing the game. Mm. Um, the big challenge for Southampton is how do they stay ahead of that? You know, and that's the that's the big challenge for for the current ownership there to to decide which way they want to go. No, awesome! But I think it's great to uh, go into uh, my favourite part of the show, which is what the foot are you lying for? So uh, take me away with your uh, three statements, please, Liz. Um, well, um, my three statements, um, are, I almost signed Philip Coutinho. So you got that one already. Yeah, in the bag, I got that one, yeah. And you know that's true. Uh, I've won three trophies at Wembley as a coach. Three trophies at Wembley um, as a coach. And the third one is I played with George Best. 
played with George Best. Three trophies at Wembley as a as a coach, did you say? Oh. Um I know you have coached. Um playing with George Best. I know you've got that shirt in the background as well. So, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say you played with George Best at Wembley, and uh, the three trophies as a coach is a is a lie. But we'll uh, we'll find that towards the end. Wow, what an episode just then for part one with Les Reed, guys. Make sure you're subscribed. I'm gonna give you about a couple of seconds to make sure that you're subscribed. Make sure you're subscribed because part two is coming soon. And it's going to be awesome. We speak about the situation right now with England and going forward into the Euros. We speak about Virgil van Dijk. Key buzzword for you there. But guys, make sure you're subscribed because if you're not subscribed, you're going to miss this amazing content that, that's been produced for the last year or so. Have a lovely week, guys. Yeah. What the footy? 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 Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now supporting Arsenal. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fans. Get ready to cheer on Team USA. Sign up for Xfinity Internet and get a Flex 4K streaming box free and Peacock Premium included. Can your internet do that? Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Peacock subscription required. Xfinity, proud partner of Team USA. Minute Maid slushies are back at McDonald's. And if you'd like to thank me for that information, I'll gladly take a slushie. It's more than a drink. It's a McDonald's drink. Right now, treat yourself to a small Minute Maid slushie, like the new strawberry watermelon flavor for $1.59. Or try small McCafe frappes and smoothies for just two bucks. Price and participation may vary. Limited time only. Minute Maid is a trademark of the Coca-Cola Company.